Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The FT. The pension providers accepting kickbacks for pushing you into an annuity that might not be the right one for you. New companies are flooding onto the stock market, but should ordinary investors be buying their shares? And calls grow for the reform of stamp duty on property. I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues Joe Cumbo, hello, and Lucy Warwick Ching, hello, plus Peter Lee of Sovereign Leadership Group, hello. Last week we talked about how you can sell your house yourself rather than using an estate agent who will charge you around 1.5% for doing so. But it's emerged this week that some pension providers are handing over your accumulated funds to an annuity provider that may not be the best or the most appropriate choice for you, and that they're getting a kickback of over twice the amount estate agents charge for doing so. In a typical pension scheme, the saver accumulates money over their lifetime, and when he or she retires, uses that money to purchase an annuity, a kind of insurance contract that pays an income during retirement. We already know that annuity rates are currently low compared to historical levels, which is making life tough for those approaching retirement. We also know that many people don't get the best rate at retirement because they don't shop around or declare medical conditions that could secure them a higher income. Many just take the rate offered to them by the company they saved with. But not all pension providers offer annuities. Those that don't often refer savers to other companies, and in some cases, there's a nice kickback for those involved. Joe Cumbo has been investigating. Joe, first of all, how does all this work? Who's getting what at what stage of the process? Typically, what happens when you're saving and getting close to retirement is that the company where you have saved for your pension will offer you or provide you with an annuity quote, as you stated. But not all pension saving companies sell annuities. So what we have seen is happening now is that those companies that don't sell annuities are partnering up with companies that do. What will happen when you get your wake-up pack, for example, a few weeks um, before retirement, you will get a quote from another company included in that pack um, with uh, an illustration of how much they will offer you if you buy it from them. In some cases, if the, uh, if the customer goes on to buy um, an annuity from, from the company, the annuity provider, that annuity provider will pay a commission payment to the pension savings company of up to about 3.5% I've established in the market. 
Okay, and what's that commission for? Are they doing any legwork to get you the best deal or, or are they taking your individual needs into consideration at all? That money is just simply paid from the provider to the pension savings company. It should be disclosed to the pension saver, to the customer in your annuity quote. And indeed, I've seen an example of an annuity quote for uh, a woman who um, was so had £50,000 worth of savings and was it was disclosed to her that the commission would be about £1,750 paid from her annuity provider to the annuity savings company. And, and that was simply a commission payment. Okay. Just we should be very clear about this. Is this this money is not coming out of your pension fund, is it? It is not coming out of the pension fund directly, um, as it might do, for example, if you went to an advisor and said, I want to pay for my fees, I want that fee accounted for, just take it off my pension fund and it would reduce the spending power of your uh, pension fund in terms of the annuity you would get at the end of the day. But what um, LNG, for example, has a commission arrangement of this sort with Zurich, Zurich customers um, who move to LNG, commission will be paid of 3.5%, whatever the size of the pot, to Zurich. Um, And for that, what LNG describe it as is uh, it tells their customers that it will affect the annuity rate that you were offered. Now, this is where it gets a little bit confusing. It doesn't come off your pot, but what LNG says, we'll take the hit from our profits and it's part of our expenses. So you will still get a very competitive rate and you'll get the same rate offered to you as you would do on the open market, except that we're going to pay a commission for your business. Okay. Now, some people might take the view, well, so long as it's not coming out of my pension fund, it's not coming out of my money... Do you know what? That's fine. It saves me a load of hassle. Um, are they right to think that or is it is it more complicated? It is a little bit more complicated. Now, I've spoken to Zurich and I've spoken to LNG and indeed I've spoken to all the providers who have these partnerships. And in Zurich's case, their argument was, well, we don't offer annuities. We want to offer our customers some kind of default option because not everybody's going to shop around and we... Um, chose LNG because LNG is one of the most competitive annuity providers in the market. So all that sounds fairly good, but LNG is not the most and the you know the leading company at all times. Indeed, if you're looking for um, if you have a medical condition, um, you might be better off going to another company who's more competitive uh, for enhanced annuities. So this is where it all starts to get. You can trip up on on you know just going down or being nudged towards a particular provider without really exploring your full options. Okay, it sounds to me like what we're coming back to here is the the thing we've said on the Money Show many times before, which is that when you come to buy an annuity, it's absolutely vital to shop around. These companies do stress. Now, there's a number of companies that have these arrangements. And just let me mention that LNG has similar arrangements um, to make commission payments to Sun Life, AXA Wealth, Scandia. I know Prudential has an arrangement with Royal London and Equitable Life, which is um, a closed. It's in runoff now, so it doesn't offer any competitive annuities. There's also an arrangement with Canada Life. They tell me that they do encourage their customers in the first instance to shop around. That's part of a new industry code. But they will also provide these quotes from from other companies. The message that we we have uh, said numerous times is that, yes, you should continue to shop around and explore all your options. It might mean not choosing an annuity. You know, you have an option to delay. You don't have to buy an annuity. So it's always best to consider all your options, not just buying an annuity. 
Thank you very much, Joe. With more on annuity rates and the importance of shopping around and taking advice in this weekend's FT Money, we've also got an exclusive interview with a senior official at the pensions regulator. His comments on issues like charges and pensions liberation scams make very interesting reading. FT Money is part of FT Weekend, which don't forget is available on Sunday as well as Saturday. You can also read it on all tablet platforms and at ft.com/money. Still to come on the show, why more people are calling for an overhaul of stamp duty on property. But first, let's take a look at IPOs. Investors who were lucky enough to get shares in Royal Mail and who have held on to them are now sitting on profits of close to 70%. Twitter's shares rose that much on their first day of trading last week, and it seems like there's a lot to be gained by getting in on the ground floor when a company first comes to the stock market. There's plenty more in the pipeline too. Infinis and Just Retirement will float this week, and there are rumours that Poundland, DFS, and House of Fraser, and many others, could soon be heading to the stock market. But are IPOs such a surefire winner? Not all have gone so swimmingly. Shares in Eshore, the motor insurer made famous by Michael Winner's adverts, have drifted since they floated earlier this year. And shares in department store group Debenhams are just over half the level they were when they returned to the market back in May 2006. And of course, not all IPOs offer an allocation of shares for individual investors. Many focus their efforts on big institutions, meaning that smaller investors have to buy in the market once the shares have started trading. I'm joined now by Peter Lee of Sovereign Leadership Group, a company that runs training courses for both private and professional investors. Peter, a lot of the recent flotations in London have been of companies owned by private equity firms, and in some cases, like Debenhams, they are returning to the stock market after a period in private ownership. And typically, the private equity firm will sell a chunk of its shares, and most of the other money raised is used to refinance debt. Now that looks to me like we're providing somebody else's profit rather than investing in a growing business. So, how suspicious should we be about the motives of the the people who are doing the selling? I would encourage people to be, of course, healthily sceptical about many things. However, I wouldn't be automatically suspicious of private equity sellers. I think it should be recognised that what they do is one thing: they restructure and refinance firms that, in their opinion, can be um, optimised or made more profitable or better businesses through such restructuring or recapitalisation. They then later look to sell those or exit from those companies by selling on the stock market. One one way of doing that is, of course, through an IPO. I should point out, though, that um, so if if they restructure, refinance, they come to a time when they consider it optimal to look for other opportunities. So, for example. If we look at Infinis Energy, which is、uh, a deal being put together by、um, or the where the seller is Guy Hans's Terra Firma vehicle, Terra Firma will remain a 65% shareholder of this company even after the IPO. They would want to release capital so that they can go after other opportunities. But remember that even after the IPO, then Terra Firma would remain a 65% shareholder. And that's a good thing, you'll say that they're a committed long-term holder. They're not just turning a quick buck. It means that that their interests are certainly aligned with the interests of the other shareholders, 
most importantly, of course, those new shareholders who come to the table as a consequence of the IPO. Now, many recent floats have been of companies that are familiar to investors from our daily lives, such as Royal Mail or um, Merlin Entertainments, which runs theme parks like Alton Towers. Is that an important factor, do you think? Is it easier to sell a business um, when we already know what it is and what it does? I would say um, unequivocally, yes. No one in the country has any doubt you know, there are shades of interpretation, but no, almost nobody would have any doubt about what Royal Mail do. It would take a very short moment to explain what Merlin Entertainments do. These are familiar and quite simple industries. Other things, you know, um, Joe a moment ago was talking about uh, annuities and the provision of annuities. So another recent IPO was um, Partnership Assurance, which hasn't gone so well. It's a harder business to explain, but they actually are an annuity provider, amongst other things, to people with relatively poor health. The point I'm making is that 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 is not so visible or transparent in the public eye and hasn't gone as a consequence so well. So, you know, whereas Royal Mail is up nearly 70%, the one I've just mentioned, Partnership Assurance, is to date down about 15-16%. And what about size? Are, Are big floats better than small or is it the other way around or is there no hard and fast rule on that i would be extremely reluctant to offer any rule of thumb or hard and fast rule on that um of course the bigger the flotations uh the more likely you are to hear about them royal mail you couldn't fail to hear about but you know royal mail as uh, as you mentioned Jonathan, is up about 70 percent to date you know um other small things a recent deal in the summer conviviality retail who own um, convenience stores around the country. Again, not a hard business to explain. That one, a much smaller one, so uh, 64 odd million as opposed to just shy of 2 billion Royal Mail. That one is up um, well over 50%, so so 51%. Not a bad one if you had got, got involved. And finally, if you miss out on shares in an IPO, if, you, if you're not allocated, or if a flotation doesn't include an allocation of shares to individual investors, is it worth chasing the stock once it's started trading? Or does that, is that a guarantee that you'll just end up paying more? I'm very happy there to offer a general rule, which is absolutely not. <laughs> um, I, I think um, a, a cautious investor should never really chase the price of anything and if the if you didn't get involved and i can speak for myself i didn't apply for twitter but um the share price as we know is a good bit up i'm not about to go chasing it okay thank you very much you were listening to peter lee of sovereign leadership group there's lots more on this in this weekend's ft money where we look at the performance of the 20 biggest ipos over the past decade and i can tell you it's a very mixed bag We also look at IPO activity elsewhere in the world, and there's a jargon buster to help you tell your green shoe from your book build. On to our final item for today. All the big estate agency groups are busy releasing their updated forecasts for house prices. And guess what? They all expect them to continue rising at a rapid clip. Now that's great news for the government on two fronts. One is that rising house prices generate a feel-good factor, meaning the incumbent party or parties are more likely to win in 2015. The other is that rising house prices mean more stamp duty. At the time of the budget, the Treasury forecast that stamp duty receipts will total over £7 billion in the current tax year. By 2016, that total will be well into double figures. 
In Scotland, stamp duty is being replaced next year with a more progressive system, and the Welsh Assembly has also been given powers to review stamp duty in Wales. Calls are also growing for reform in England. Here to tell us why is Lucy Warwick-Ching. Lucy, there's a big reason why the Treasury is unlikely to be too fussed about devolving power over stamp duty to the devolved governments in Scotland and Wales, isn't there? The idea of reform in Scotland and Wales has gained a lot of attention amongst lenders and people that really, really want to see reform in England. But in reality, in Scotland, only 4% of the total stamp duty revenue is actually collected in Scotland. And in Wales, it's only 2%. So that means in England, we're paying a kind of whopping 94% um, of the stamp duty. So that's why now there is a lot of pressure for reform to be done in England. And who's paying most of that duty? Is it is it ordinary people buying just normal terraced and semi-detached houses or is it all those Russian millionaires buying Knightsbridge mansions with um, with sort of convoluted shell company structures? We had some research done by Hamptons um, exclusively for the FT that we're going to be running on Saturday and what their research actually shows is that at the moment um, there's 34% of the stamp duty is being paid at the 1% threshold. So that means there are quite a lot of ordinary people paying it. But because of rising house prices and things like the um, introduction of the 7% levy for stamp duty for properties worth over £2 million, that now means that in, say, five years' time, they're expecting that just 14% of people will be paying it at the 1% and it will be very much geared towards the higher percentage of stamp duty. OK, and the 1%, that's for houses up to 250000 is yes. that right? OK. So going forward, the government expects um, that more, a greater share of stamp duty will be paid by um, people purchasing very expensive homes. That's, is that a good thing, do we think? Um, it depends who you are, really. I mean, if you're one of these people that are buying very expensive properties, then you'll probably think that it's not very fair. I mean, stamp duty does seem to be very much geared towards London and the South East. So the rest of the country is not actually paying as much in, in stamp duty. But I, their property prices aren't as high. But there are lots of reasons why people want stamp duty to be reformed. I was about to ask that. Everybody seems to think it's a pretty rotten tax, which is precisely why the Scots and the Welsh are reforming it. What What is exactly so objectionable about this particular tax? Well, lots of people would say it's the kind of fiscal drag issue. So it means that you know stamp duty thresholds will stay the same, but then house prices are rising. So it doesn't, lots of people are saying that that's very unfair. And the other problem is um, what's been termed the kind of slab rate. So... The problem with this is that there seems to be a lot of distortion in the, in the house price market around where those stamp duty cutoffs are. So people trying to buy a property that's worth up to 250000 they're not going to spend... If you own one of those properties, you're not going to be able to ask for, say, two hundred sixty or 270000 because it will push the buyer into the next stamp duty up. So... There's lots of stagnation around there and there's lots of distortion. People think that's very unfair. I mean, there's other problems as well, you know, to do with um, demographics, really. So people that may be older and they're actually 
you know, their their accommodation issues have slightly changed, so they could be willing to downsize their property. They may be put off because they're going to have to pay stamp duty on if they do purchase another property. And then the other final issue is help to buy. The government's just introduced this new initiative to help people get onto the property market. But then some people are saying, well, you know, why are you in, why are you helping people to fund these deposits if you're then going to hit them with a, you know... Robbing Peter to pay exactly. Paul. Yeah. Thank you very much, Lucy. We should point out that as rotten a tax as stamp duty is, the various schemes out there that purport to help you avoid it are even worse. You could end up paying not only the tax you owe, but a fine as well. You can read lots more about stamp duty and the impact of rising house prices on how it's collected in this weekend's FT Money. There's always in-depth coverage of UK house prices on FT.com and, of course, you'll find a selection of the latest and most competitive mortgage rates in our databank section on a Saturday. We've also got a guest column on Japan as we come up to the first anniversary of Arbonomics and John Redwood updates on the progress of his low-cost passive-only investment portfolio. But that's it from The Money Show this week. We'll be back next week with more money news in downloadable form. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from me, Joe, Lucy and Peter Leahy of Sovereign Leadership. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.